We're so excited about that next sermon series that'll be here for the summer. It'll really help equip you uh, to engage in conversation, your friends and family members who may not even know what they're missing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But before we get there, let me offer to you one last message in our current series as we finish up the book of Hebrews. Uh, by the way, haven't you been so blessed by some of our guest speakers throughout this series? Zach, Zach and Steve Welch last week, James Rickershauser, Peter Pendel. Can we thank them for their uh, service to the Lord? and? It's such a blessing to us. But I want to begin today uh, with one more boxing illustration. I promise this is the last boxing illustration for like at least the next five years, okay? But one more boxing illustration in honor of my two nephews who are here today. I want to talk to you about Creed II. Uh, me and my nephew saw this in the theater a few years ago. Creed II, it's an American sports drama written by Sylvester Stallone. It's the eighth uh, count them, eighth installment in the greatest franchise of all time, the Rocky franchise. This one uh, stars Michael B. Jordan. In this film, it's all about Apollo Creed's son, Adonis Creed, played by Jordan, who faces off against Victor Drago, yes, the son of the infamous Ivan Drago, the Russian fighter from the Cold War who took the life of Apollo Creed back in 1985 in Rocky IV. Well, there's been about 30 years since that event has occurred, and uh, in this film, there are two featured fights. In the first fight, Victor Drago is the clear winner. Uh, he just is obviously head and shoulders above Adonis Creed, but he is disqualified right at the end of that match for hitting Adonis while he is actually knocked down, allowing Adonis to retain the World Heavyweight Championship just by a technicality. But it is a great embarrassment to Creed. Uh, Creed is badly injured physically, and maybe more acutely, he is also emotionally shattered by the result of this lopsided fight where he just clearly got the snot beat out of him and lost to this stronger opponent uh, and only maintained his belt by that, like I said, slight technicality. And that leads me to show you this final picture. This is my uh, favorite scene in the film. It is the most powerful scene in the film where you see here Creed is doing physical therapy in a swimming pool and uh, he's recovering from this beating and here he is under the water as he's experiencing some deep emotional distress and as he goes under, he just can't take it anymore and he begins screaming at the top of his lungs under the water where nobody can hear him out of anger and, and deep grief that he can no longer hold in. He's clearly emotionally shattered, struggling to move on with his life, and uh, through this incredible failure, Creed has been shaken to the core. Have you ever been shaken by life? Have you ever been shaken by life? Sometimes things happen that can shake us. Not small trials and small difficulties, uh, you know, a, a flat tire, I got a cold. No, I'm talking about the big things. It's not just a job loss, it's a middle-aged man who experiences a job loss and has no idea how he's going to provide for his young kids. It's not just the passing of a loved one, it's the young couple that was so excited about their pregnancy and now is mourning the loss of miscarriage. It's not just a sickness, it's the older saint who worked his entire life, now is retired, has dedicated time to serve the Lord, and then gets diagnosed with cancer. Have you ever been shaken by life? Maybe something else would resonate with you. I'm not sure your story, but have you ever wanted to sink down into the bottom of the swimming pool and scream at the top of your lungs? 
The book of Hebrews is written to those who've been shaken by life. It's this book that, that was once a sermon that is written for anyone, anyone who is shaken and who says, why, God, if you are for me, why, if you are with me, why, if you love me, am I struggling like this? Why is all this happening to me? I've read all the stories in chapter 11. I know about your power and the parting of the Red Sea, but where is your power in my life today? Have you ever been shaken by life? Maybe you're here today and life is good. The pandemic is almost over and, and you are just doing really well. And if that's you, we rejoice with you and uh, we celebrate with you. But would you please listen to this final message today because you might need it someday. Or maybe you're here today and you're at the bottom of that pool and nobody really knows how beaten up and tired you feel uh, and you're quite scared and you feel like you're screaming down there and nobody even knows that you're down at the bottom of that pool and you've been shaken by life right now. If that's you, would you listen to this message today because it's for you. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. As we look at this final message in this amazing book, we're going to learn how to live a life that's absolutely unshakable. A life that's absolutely unshakable. And to do that, we're going to need to learn to do three things. Number one, you must choose your true mountain. Number two, if you want to live a life that's unshakable, you must connect with your true family. And number three, if you want to live a life that's unshakable, you must cherish Christ as your truest treasure. Your true mountain, your true family, and your true treasure. You'll see what I mean when we dig in. Before that, let's pray. God, we pause for a moment, thanking you for preserving this amazing scripture, this amazing sermon, the book of Hebrews. And we um, come to the end of our study with, with much thanksgiving. Uh, would you remind us again, one last time today, that Jesus really is greater than all for his sake? and his reputation. Amen. Movement one, you must choose your true mountain. Throughout the book, the author of Hebrews has been like a tour guide. He's taking us on a, a guide of Old Testament biblical history, if you will. In this first movement, you're going to see a contrast between two mountains. Uh, these two mountains are symbolic of two different covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, take a look with me at the first mountain. Chapter 12, verse 18 says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they, they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Pause. Here the author recreates the scene at the first mountain, Mount Sinai. It's a vivid picture of the place where the covenant of law was first given. And he uses this as a way of describing what life is like when you live life underneath of the law. This is a place of fear. It's a place of darkness. It is terrifying. It was so scary that people didn't want to get anywhere near this mountain. They said, Moses, you go talk to God for us. We're too scared to even go up there. You mediate for us. There was such a profound dread. Notice it says it was burning with fire. Not the kind of fire I enjoy in my fireplace at home, a nice cozy fire. No, the fire here, this mountain is like Mordor. This is the kind of mountain you go and you throw your ring into this mountain, right? What's going on here? 
The idea here between, be, behind the fire is, is separation. There was, a, there was a fiery sword outside of the Garden of Eden as the cherubim kept the presence of God at a distance. The fire was keeping the, the mountain of God uh, encircled, and the fire communicated this, this divide, this separation. The, the fire created a barrier. The mountain was roped off. This is what it's like to live under the law. It's a life of gloom. It's a life of fear. It's a life of guilt. It's a life of condemnation. In contrast now, look with me at another mountain, which represents another covenant. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here we have a description of Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Notice there's at least five different categories of inhabitants here on this mountain. There's thousands of angels all in festal array, providing a welcoming party to any sinner who will come to God in repentance. Second, there's the church of the firstborn, that's us, the New Testament saints. Third, there's God, that's an important figure here, right? The judge of all. Fourth, there's the spirits of the righteous made perfect. These are the Old Testament saints. This is the great cloud of witnesses we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. Finally, last but not least, Jesus is there the mediator of a new covenant. These are the inhabitants of Mount Zion. Church father Athanasius said, who would not wish to enjoy the high companionship of these? Who would not desire to be enrolled in this number? When the saints go marching in, I want to be associated with the mountain of grace. Which mountain do you associate with in your life? Uh, the one mountain is like an arduous climb, uphill the whole way. It's exhausting. It's despairing. On the other mountain, it's almost like God provides a heavenly ski lift and by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit creates a way for us to just come with no effort on our part at all except by faith. What does it look like to live around Mount Sinai, to choose to live under the law? Well, that kind of person obeys God, but only externally. They obey out of fear. They obey out of legalism. They are the older brother in the prodigal son story. Though their life looks commendable on the outside, oh, on the inside, they are resentful. On the inside, they are angry. On the inside, they are self-righteous. On the inside, they are arrogant, and they are prideful, and they are not like Jesus at all. This is Mount Sinai. On the other hand, if you're a person who associates with Mount Zion, you are a person that's had an experience with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You desire now to obey God from the heart, from the inside out. You delight in God not to earn his favor, but because of gratitude for all that he has done for you. You serve out of joy. You know that you've received mercy, therefore you extend mercy when you are wronged. You know how aware you are of your own sin, and you understand that we're all covered by the blood. You know that you've received kindness, therefore you're able to extend kindness to others who fail as well. 
This is Mount Zion. This is the community where you belong. This is your tribe. This is your home. Which mountain will you associate with? Now, let me offer you a warning. If you associate with Mount Zion, you will experience persecution. If you associate with Mount Zion, that will not always be readily and happily received by all of your friends and family. If you associate with Mount Zion, there is a warning here that you will be persecuted, and there is a warning and a temptation for you that you will want to depart away from God. Uh, This is the fifth and final warning of the book of Hebrews. We've seen the warning against drifting and then doubting and then dullness and then despising the blood. And finally, there's this one final warning as the author gives one last warning word here, the fifth warning of Hebrews about departing away from God altogether. Take a look with me at verse 25. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Now, the him in verse 25 is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know from chapter one that in the past, God has spoken in various ways through diverse measures, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. We know in chapter three, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Is there anywhere in your life where you are currently not listening to the voice of your savior who is speaking to you? There is a warning associated with that not listening. He goes on to say, if they did not escape, When they refused him who warned on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more, quoting Haggai chapter 2, the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Notice the argument. The writer is saying that since those under the old covenant did not escape when God warned them from earth, how are we going to escape when God warns us from heaven? Commentator Richard Phillips says, quote, given the glorious prospect set before us in the gospel, it would be the greatest folly to gaze upon this, to hear this call, and yet walk away and turn away. The warning is against departing from the community of faith, from departing, leaving the faith. And if we do that, the author says, there's only one thing that you can expect. There's only one promise that you can expect God to fulfill. There's only one more promise that you can count on. It is the promise that God will one day shake this entire universe. The shaking likely refers to the promised events at the end of time, the second coming of Christ. And after those cataclysmic events, Only that which is eternal, only that which is unshakable, only that which can never be shaken will remain. Notice verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This past year has felt like our whole world during the pandemic has been shaking. This past year, it's been shaking in so many ways. We felt shaking with regards to our health concerns. We we felt shaking financially. We felt shaking politically. And we felt that God was shaking everything that can be shaken. And the question, uh, really, that we have to answer is, 
Are our lives being built on that which is shakable or that which is unshakable? Everybody has some sort of approach to their spiritual lives. How do you face life? Uh, The person who associates with Mount Sinai says, I'm going to try my best. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I'm going to work hard and earn favor. But don't you see, friends, if you build your life on that mountain, if you build your life on your own efforts, on your own working hard, or your own financial success, or your own strategy for whatever it means for you, then when things get shaken, if if your hope is built on finances, economic downturn won't just be hard for you, it will be devastating for you. It will shake you to the core. See, the shaking of God's judgment exposes that which is ultimate and that which is eternal and that which is everlasting. And if we rely on ourselves, when God shakes us, there won't be anything left. The only thing to do here, friends, is to run to Mount Zion, to find refuge in Christ and in his work on your behalf. And we must say with the author to the Hebrews The just will live by faith in him. Friends, this is what we must remember when we are being shaken by life. So often we suffer, and when we do suffer, we think, I can't believe God is allowing this to happen to me. God must not care about me. God must not love me. This must be something, something's wrong with God. But don't you see the author to the Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. Don't you realize that this world is not your home? Don't you realize that you're a pilgrim here? You're a sojourner here? You're an alien and a stranger here? We are resident aliens seeking a city to come. There are times when life will hit you so hard, it will feel like a wave knocks you down at the beach and you can't even touch bottom and you are lost out at sea and during those times you have to go back to where you can touch bottom. The writer says, this is bottom. You have come to Mount Zion and Jesus is there. And during these times of shaking, we have to go back to that which is unshakable and say, though the ground around me may shake, Jesus is my rock. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. If we want to live a life that is unshakable, we must choose our true mountain. Number two, if we want to live a life that is unshakable, we must connect with our true family. At first glance, the beginning of Hebrews chapter 13, being the final chapter, to me, seemed a little bit anticlimactic. Here's these folks dealing with intense cultural marginalization. They're being shaken by life. And the question that they're asking is, how am I supposed to get through all of this? And it seems like the book ends with chapter 13 here without much of a punch, as if there's no resources to deal with those serious issues. It's like a to-do list. It's like these ethical prescriptions that is wrong. This is not an anticlimax. What we're being told here at the beginning of chapter 13, brothers and sisters, is about the importance of authentic community. You will never make it in life, especially when there is a shaking without a spiritual family to be supporting you. Look with me at what he says in chapter 13, verse 1. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. 
Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is a description of real life in the community of the body of Christ, a place that's filled with love, a place that's filled with hospitality, a place where we're building strong marriages and strong families, a place that's marked not by the love of money but by generosity, and a place that is led by godly leaders who pursue holiness. This is the kind of church that you want to be a part of. This is the kind of church that we're trying to build here. We need to create a community of Christ followers who are using their spiritual gifts. This is what you need. You need encouragement and you need support and you need accountability for the times of life when life shakes you. There are statistics out there, scary statistics, that say after the pandemic, it's said that one out of five individuals who used to be attending an evangelical church will no longer be attending that same evangelical church after the pandemic is finally over. Brothers and sisters, do not let that be you. Those of you who are here, obviously it's not you. You're here already, but if you're here already or watching already, let me just encourage you, don't just come to church or just watch church. Don't just go to church. Let's be the church. In the movie Creed 2, after he lost the first time, this is what he did. He gathered around himself a support system, a community that could support him. He got Rocky back in his corner. He got little Duke to retrain him, the son of his father's trainer. He surrounded himself with structures and, and a community and a support system so that he could build up his endurance and become strong again. This is what the church should be doing. So let me challenge you, as we are seeking to build such a community here, are you helping are you serving? What is your spiritual gift and how are you using it? Not 10 years ago, today. Are you helping us build this kind of community? We must remain connected to our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we want to live the unshakable life, we must choose our true mountain. We must choose our true family. And then lastly, number three, we must also cherish Christ as our true treasure. Take a look with me as we continue in chapter 13 at verse 13. As the author says in a great word of exhortation to all of us, let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Notice those three words, outside the camp. Here the writer is saying, since Jesus suffered on the outside of Jerusalem and bore disgrace and bore reproach, if you are his follower, then they that hated him will also hate you. If you are his disciple, then a student cannot be above his teacher. If you are a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you too must be willing to go outside of the camp and bear his disgrace as well. Would you be willing to go outside of the camp in your life, whatever that means for you? Would you be willing to take some courageous steps in following God by faith, even if it means suffering? How do we do that? 
What is the mechanism that God provides for us as a spiritual resource that would empower us to be able to go outside of the camp and endure what is sometimes great suffering and trials and difficulties? In other words, what creates the motivation to do this? Notice the verse says the way in which we do this is that we are to live for a city that is to come. We are to focus not on the here and now, but on the reward that is coming in the future. Do you see that? I want you to see that, and I want you to see that this same theme has been woven throughout the book of Hebrews this entire series. We endure now, fixing our eyes on the reward that is to come. Let me just give you a couple examples. Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is how I endure suffering, because I know God promises to me as his child a better reward, a joy that is set before me, a city that is to come. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in the field. The wise man would go sell everything he has just to get this treasure. Jesus is worth more than we think that he is. The gospel is worth far more than we think it is, friends. Knowing God is worth far more than we think that it is. It is worth everything. There is nothing more valuable than your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I believe that? Do you believe that? If I make anything else my treasure besides him, Whatever that might be, whether it is fame or perhaps my looks or some substance or my money or my career or anything else, if I make anything else my true treasure, then when this world is shaken, that will be shaken too and I will be shaken along with it. My true treasure must be Christ alone. Friends, this is the aim of the book of Hebrews. This is the point of the book of Hebrews. If you get nothing else that we said over the last three months, please get this. The whole point of the book of Hebrews, let me say it again, the way in which God motivates you and me to endure great suffering and great sacrifice is that we are to treasure Christ as our reward that is to come more than anything else in this world. He is greater than all. How do we endure when life shakes? By focusing on the reward. Sometimes you hear people say, you know, Christians, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That is not true at all. Those who are the most heavenly minded have done the most good on this earth. Here's another example. Probably the main exhortation in the book of Hebrews, probably the main point of the book comes in chapter 10. Let me just remind you what it says. The author says this, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great, what? Reward. For you have need of endurance. This is what the writer is trying to say to his audience. You need endurance. You, here's what you need. You need endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised so that you might receive your reward. Model him who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And the joy that was set before him was, of course, you. And so since you were the joy that was set before him, now make him the joy that is set before you. And endure. 
The way in which we can endure great suffering and difficulty in our lives is by focusing on the joy that is set before us, the reward. And let me just say right now, Jesus is the reward. In the movie Creed 2, there's a featured scheduled rematch in Moscow. And to train for this fight, they bring Adonis Creed out into the desert of California to train him in the heat and the exhaustion to prepare him for the final fight, which will be the fight of his life. Their strategy is very simple, yet excruciating. They are training Adonis' body to endure unbelievable pain and absorb heavy impact so that he will be ready to receive the blows of Victor Drago in the ring. And since Victor Drago is accustomed to winning by knockout, his fights have never lasted beyond the fourth round. And so Rocky and Creed use this strategy to their advantage, and they willingly endure this heavy beating from, from Victor. And while he tires out, then in the 10th round, Adonis unleashes sequence after sequence on Drago with effective blow after effective blow. And ultimately, his dad, Ivan Drago, picks up the towel, throws it in, and Creed wins the final belt, final fight, uh, winning the belt and retaining the title. What's the lesson there? Endurance is what brought the victory. I believe the writer to the Hebrews is saying something very, very similar. The word endurance there on the screen in chapter 10, and it shows up in multiple places in the book of Hebrews, is the Greek word hupomeno. Hupo means something's above me, and meno means I remain there. So I abide temporarily under like a cloud, like something's under me for a time, for a season, and I am to persevere and I am to endure under that thing temporarily. Persevere, endure. It means to stand firm under difficulty. Friends, hupomeno is the most common word used in the Bible when it comes to how I am supposed to face difficulties in my life not just in the book of Hebrews. Consider just a few examples. James 5.11, we count those blessed who endured. Matthew 10.22, those who endure to the end will be saved. 1 Corinthians 14, when we are persecuted, we endure. 2 Timothy 4.5, be sober in all things, endure hardship. 1 Peter 2.20, when you do what is right and suffer for it, patiently endure. This finds favor with God. Friends, it's not just Hebrews. Paul, Peter, John, James, even the Lord Jesus himself, they are all on the same page. When you suffer difficulties, God calls you to do what? To endure. Now, I know that's not what you want to hear. Brother, sister, regarding that difficulty that you're facing right now, that pain that you have, it might last a while. Best advice, hang in there. I know that's not what we want to hear when we're under discipline and difficulty. I know. We just want it to go away. We're Americans. It's the 21st century. Give me something for the pain. That is not the Bible's prescription. The most common word in the Bible, listen very carefully here, the most common word in the scripture 
associated with difficulties, obstacles, and suffering in life is not prayer, it is not faith, it is not hope, it is not encouragement, and it is not comfort. It is over and over and over and over, endure. Do you have endurance in your life? This finds favor with God. Can you be steadfast, immovable, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain? Can you endure? Let us go to him outside of the camp and bear his reproach. In commenting on this text in Hebrews, Pastor John Piper said, as followers of the Lord Jesus, our lives should have a radical flavor Our lives should have the same kind of gutsy, risk-taking, courage-displaying flavor. Our lives should display like a toughness that keeps other people in our lives a little bit off balance. Our lives should have a saltiness that give other people the taste of how great our God is, that we would be willing to endure this or even great suffering for his sake because he really is worth it and greater than all. In 1939, Howard Guinness, one of the early founders of the Evangelical Fellowship of International Students, wrote this tiny book called Sacrifice. And in that book, he said this, quote, where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful unto death, who will lose their lives for Christ, flinging them away for love of him? Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless for his service? Where are the men of prayer? Where are the men who count God's word as more important to them than their daily food? Where are God's men in this day? Where are those who will say like the Apostle Paul, I don't count my life of any value, as precious to myself, but only that I might finish the course to do that which God has given to me to testify to the grace of God. Where are the men who will say like Joab to his brother Abishai, surrounded in battle by Syrians and Ammonites, brother, let us be courageous. Today, let us play the man for our God and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do whatever seems good to him. Where are the women, ladies, who like Esther will say to her uncle Mordecai, Mordecai, go tell our people to fast and I will go into the king though it is against the law and if I perish, I perish. Where is Jesus? Take a look again with me at Hebrews 13, verse 13. Can we put that up on the screen one more time? In this verse, Jesus is outside the camp. Jesus is not saying to you and me from behind us, you guys go ahead, you go over there. No. Jesus is outside the camp saying, guys, I'm out here. You're in there where it's so safe and so comfortable. I'm out here. I'm over here in the place of suffering and difficulty and persecution. If you want to meet with me and find me, I'm over here. 
brothers and sisters, the sweetest fellowship you'll ever have in your life is Philippians chapter 3, the fellowship of his sufferings. There he will meet with you. But you must go out there. What would it look like for you to go outside the camp in your life? Taking a stand for Christ at work or in your family? Taking a stand for the truth? I'm not sure, but I know this, that God calls his followers to perhaps at times experience great personal cost associated with their discipleship and following him. And so this is the challenge here at the end of our series of the book of Hebrews. This is the challenge of the book of Hebrews. We are to endure today, putting our sights and our hope on the city which is to come, Mount Zion. Going back to those two mountains for just a second, can I just ask a question? What happened to Mount Sinai? Where did all of the judgment go? Where did all of the darkness go? Where did all of the condemnation go? How did we end up somehow avoiding all of that? The answer is found in that little phrase at the bottom of the screen, that Jesus' blood is speaking a better word than the blood of Abel. Almost a throwaway line. The blood of Abel from Genesis? You'll recall the story Cain kills his brother Abel and God says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Remember that? What word did the blood of Abel cry out from the ground? The answer is that the blood of Abel was crying out for justice. His blood said the murderer must be condemned. The sinner must be punished. The soul that sins will die. But, however, did you notice what the writer of Hebrews has said here? He has said that the blood of Christ, which has been shed for you, is crying out and speaking and speaking a better word. Abel's blood cried out for retribution, but Jesus' blood cries out a better word. Jesus' blood is crying out, show them mercy. Show them forgiveness. Give them grace. All who will come to me and place their trust in me will receive the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ upon their souls. That's a better word. His blood speaks of grace, not vengeance. Jesus' blood speaks of mercy rather than judgment. Jesus' blood speaks of forgiveness rather than condemnation. How did he do that? The answer is he experienced the thunder of Mount Sinai himself. You'll recall on the cross on Good Friday on Calvary that the earth grew dark, that there was a day of gloom, that, the, that there was a day of condemnation, that, that there was a day of God's wrath, that Jesus himself experienced an earthquake in that day, and that on that day, on Mount Calvary, Jesus himself took all of the judgment and condemnation and Mount Sinai upon himself as it all fell upon his back. You recall Hebrews 9, 26, but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. This is why his blood speaks a better word. As Abel's blood spoke a word of a judgment and, and a storm, but Jesus' blood comes along and says to that storm, peace. Peace. Be still. 
So we say with John Newton, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. The reason your life can be unshakable is because you are placing your faith and trust in the one who was shaken on your behalf. As the worship team comes, I want to share one more truth from Hebrews 13. Notice those two words on the screen, highlighted in yellow, to him. The words to him, that tiny little prepositional phrase, I believe, recall everything that we have learned about the Lord Jesus throughout the whole book of Hebrews. I want you to pour into those two words, to him, everything that you have learned about the Lord Jesus Christ over the past three months in this book of Hebrews. Let me just remind you all that we have learned about the Lord Jesus throughout this entire series. And for this, I am indebted to John Piper, who compiled this amazing list of the way Christ is described through the book of Hebrews. Listen now, starting in the first chapter, to who this one is. Jesus is God's final revelation. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of the world. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He made purification for sins. He sits at the right hand of God Almighty. He is God enthroned forever with a scepter of uprightness. He is worshiped by the angels. His rule will have no end. His joy is above all other beings in the universe. He took on human flesh. He was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering. He was the founder of our salvation. He was made perfect in all his obedience by his suffering. He destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil. He delivered you from the bondage of fear. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. He made propitiation for sins. He is greater than Moses. He offers true rest for your soul. He is sympathetic because of his own trials. He never sinned. He offered up loud cries and tears with reverent fear, and God the Father heard him. He became the source of eternal salvation. He holds his priesthood by virtue of an indestructible life. He offers you a better covenant, a new covenant. He is the greater sacrifice. He appears in the presence of God on your behalf. He will come a second time to save all those who are eagerly waiting for him. He is the greater tabernacle. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is greater than all. And Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for preserving this amazing text so that we might be reminded of our Savior, who though we are facing many trials and difficulties on every side, we remember the one to whom we fix our eyes upon today who is greater than all. Would you teach us now what it means to go to him outside of the camp in our lives? Perhaps today, Father, there's some men and women in this room that are gonna make some adjustments in their lives today.
Some of them major adjustments, some of them little adjustments. But I'd ask that you empower us today to know what it means to go to him outside of the camp in our own personal lives. Would you call us from outside and empower us to take steps toward you, even toward the hard places? Would you help us to endure as we treasure our relationship with Christ as our greatest reward? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.